Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Wise Athletes Podcast, where we invite you to join our journey to understand how older athletes can achieve high performance and longevity in athletics. I am Joe Lavelle with Dr. Glenn Winkle, and this is Episode 7 of our podcast. Today, we will hear from Brian Hannon, the owner mechanic at Boulder Bicycle Works, which just happens to be my favorite bike maintenance and repair shop. I've been a customer of Brian's for several years now. I have learned to respect his deep knowledge of bikes and come to lean on him more and more. Of course, Brian is a very knowledgeable and capable bike guy, but it turns out his cycling routes go way back and cover big chunks of the globe. I shouldn't have been so surprised, but I was, and I bet you'll be amazed as well. We asked Brian to join us on Wise Athletes to share his wisdom about bike maintenance. I have often found the watch-like nature of today's high-end bikes to be frustrating when I wasn't just simply amazed at how awesome these machines can be. Brian reveals the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that even I can manage to do to keep my bike working well and safely without spending a lot of money. Listen in as we hear Brian's story and benefit from his wisdom. As always, Glenn and I hope you find this information helpful in your quest to become a wise athlete. Brian, thank you very much for joining us on the Wise Athletes Podcast. Hi, Joe. As you know, we we work to provide information to older athletes that they need to be strong and healthy throughout the second half of life. I know that you and I have uh, raced together a few times. I think you won every single time. And, uh, and I've been a super happy customer of yours at Boulder Bicycle Works. So uh, I thought you'd be a great person to have on the podcast so you can sort of share your wisdom uh, about the bike business. Okay, wonderful. And you're way too humble. I think, I think you slayed me at those uh, crits you're mentioning. <laughs> well, thanks for saying so. I, I want to go back and say I'm astonished at how true it is that I'm so happy as a customer of yours that um, when I found out, you know, some months ago that you won the Best of Boulder uh, competition, that I was not at all surprised. I mean, I was a little astonished that enough people knew about your business uh, that you could win that thing because there's lots of, you know, big names, you know, in the Boulder market out there. And, and I wonder if we could just start with you telling us about why do you think you've been so successful? What's your philosophy for your bike business that you think has led to your success? Okay. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. I'd be, I'd be happy because happy to say this because uh, I keep it really simple and I, I think a lot of small businesses should do this and perhaps have this philosophy. And I, I just like to clarify that when they did best of Boulder, we were not on the ballot. Uh, so what we won, um, because Boulder has many very big shops, what we won was the write-in best of Boulder. And I, and they don't tell us, and I have no idea if that would win me the overall basically for not being on the ballot, enough people wrote us in, into a blank line that we won that best of Boulder in the write-in. I see. But like nobody, nobody knows how many people that is and does that win the overall or not. Um, we don't advertise in that magazine and that's neither here nor there. It was a huge honor. I was, I was absolutely astounded uh, as were many people. And, and to your point, yeah, I didn't realize how many people knew or cared. Um, but bikes are a very personal part of people's lives. It's their babies. It's their, for many people, you know, Boulder's a big cycling town. It's their life. And they care greatly about that machine. It's a part of them. It gives them great joy. And, and we treat everyone with respect and try to make their bike and the equipment they have presented us as good as we can make it. And um, my advice, and not advice, my philosophy when I started the business, um, because many people said, oh, you're, you're crazy to start a little bike shop in Boulder. We had this probably six years ago, and there were close to 20 shops in eight square miles. So, uh, But I had worked in a number of big shops up and down the Front Range and in three or four in Boulder. And I realized that there's a very high turnover rate of very young mechanics and when guys and gals uh, come in and they've got disposable income and they're middle-aged and the bike means a lot to them, the kind of the last thing they want to do is hand that off to somebody 
and then it disappears and back and they don't know who's working on it. And can they trust that person? Do they know that person? Will they get the bike back? Will it have the problems have been addressed? Will it have been repaired properly? So I wanted to have a small service shop with only sir, with only senior mechanics, always doing the utmost of our abilities with every bike and that people would know us and see us and, and get to know us uh, personally and that that would, they would trust us. And the main thing was keeping it small ish and not going overboard. Uh, we don't do new bike sales. We do order bikes for people, but we don't stock bikes. We don't stock clothing and we really are uh, stocking re replacement parts and just doing service. So we, we keep it to what we're good at and all three mechanics there full time are very, very senior and have done this for many years, know what they're doing. And uh, same with a few part-time people that we bring in in the summer. You know, these are people that have had their own shops in the past and have been in the industry doing not just wrenching, but perhaps welding, perhaps machining, um, perhaps working as a mechanic on other things like race cars. You know, they, they know how to turn wrenches quite well. But that was it. Keep it, keep it to what we know. Always do the best of our abilities. Uh, try never to let anything out the door subpar. And if you always do a good job at what you're doing, people trust you and they come back and word spreads. That's it. It was very simple. And I was somewhat confident that that would work. And we, we have kept growing over the last six years. Wow. So That's great. It's a good story too. Um, and I continue to be a very happy customer. You'll keep having my business. Thank you. Thank you. So people can um, get to know you just a little bit more before we get into advice that uh, you might give them. Can you give us a little bit of your background, uh, you know, as a cyclist and whatever else that uh, you think adds to your knowledge base, you know, as a, a guy that helps people with their bikes? Okay. Well, it, it does go back a ways. And now that I'm older and I have kids, I realize how extremely fortunate I was. And this is something I, I didn't think of, of course, when I was younger and I took for granted and maybe didn't even like a few times. But um, my parents were cyclists and not in the competitive sense. But back in the 60s, uh, when cycling definitely was not in vogue, um, they had Schwinn three speeds and would uh, go for long rides in the countryside and around town. And that was not a thing in the sixties. Uh, that was, that was full on maybe the height of car culture in the U S the sixties and seventies, but they rode and not everywhere and not all the time. But the fact is they liked to do it and they, they got out in the countryside and went for rides and, and small bike tours and they met other cyclists. And I grew up, I think my earliest memories of actually going with my dad and his friends was eight years old on the countryside in Indiana. And it was gravel. <laughs> Here we are back to gravel, um, full circle. Um, to give you some perspective, that was on a twin stingray. Wow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I had some, I had a few good wipeouts. With the banana seed. Exactly. Trying to keep up with uh, two adults on uh well, my dad would have been on a three-speed, and the other guy, another gentleman, was on the, the so-called ten-speed, but you know, some kind of uh, European drop-bar bike. And uh, it just grew from there. And my parents taking me on multi-day tours and single-day tours, and always kind of longer excursions than you would do on a twenty-inch bike for sure. And then I eventually, in middle school, I think I got a Schwinn three-speed and used that thing like mad every day. Did ragbri on that? That's about 500 miles in seven days, every day to school and back. Uh, used it all the time, and all my bikes eventually, even from a young age, got modified. So the Stingray, you know, put the 10-speed saddle on there and uh, got rid of the banana seat, got rid of the fenders, got rid of the knobbies, uh, or rather the the kind of the Stingrays had that big slick on the back and put knobby tires on there. And uh, same thing with the uh, the three speed modified the heck out of that got it to be quote unquote racier this was long before i knew i would love racing but uh at some time we were doing a club ride this would have been the late 70s 
And then I actually saw a, a group of guys with European racing bikes dressed very nicely and going really fast. And I instantly fell in love with that idea. That would have been about 79 or 80. And then I think at uh, 15 years old and about 81 did my first race and just went off the deep end. I was already a competitive swimmer and would get uh, All-American status in about 83 as a junior. Um, but after 10 years of staring at that black line in the bottom of a pool, I, I really went off the deep end on bike racing. So from about 81 and then until the next 10 years, just uh, road racing kind of consumed me and uh, became a Cat 2 junior. That transferred into a Cat 2 senior, traveled all over the U.S., um, did the biggest races I could, and uh, eventually got out of it. Uh, I, I kind of realized that I was maybe a well-trained donkey racing very high-end races with thoroughbreds. And uh, That's a, a sad realization. Well, you know, I'd been to the Olympic Training Center on three different, by invite, uh, on three different occasions and trained with the national team guys and roomed with one of them later in college. And, you know, when you're literally side by side with Davis Finney and the like, um, back in those days, it was 7-Eleven and a few other big teams, but they're coming back from Europe and ripping your legs off and uh after having done that a number of times i just i just felt like hey i'm I'm not gonna make it onto the national a team and uh maybe i shouldn't go to europe maybe i shouldn't do this and i took my dad dad up on an offer to go back to college because i had quit college to race full-time and so i went back got a degree and uh but just the passion i guess for cycling never stopped so while getting the degree uh, i kept racing and kept riding a bit uh, not as much as before. And then worked in a local bike shop where I went to school at the University of Iowa. I graduated. I actually took off on a, a big, long bike tour and just toured all over the Western Hemisphere for a year and a half, about almost 25,000 miles. Um, and during that tour, I decided that I wanted to learn how to build frames. That would have been the early 90s. And then came back, moved to Madison, Wisconsin, Worked in another big bike shop and then learned of an apprentice situation up in Minneapolis for a guy building super high-end steel frames. Walter Kroll, who no longer does that, but at the time, they were extremely nice silver-brazed uh, 531 and 753 frames and went up there and uh, started learning with him and the crew. Um, but, but shortly after, uh, about six, eight months after I got there, he decided to go into a different line of business and shut down the shop. Uh, fortuitously, a friend of a friend knew Kent Erickson out at Moots, and we got to talking. And sure enough, uh, I was a month or so later, I was moving out to Steamboat Springs and learning how to work on titanium bike frames. Uh, started at the bottom doing finish work and ended up, um, not the head welder by any means, but ended up welding and um constructing all the seat post and stems and all the custom stems and you know just learning how to do everything the alignment process finishing process welding great great times and and up there i had never i started mountain bike racing in the mid 90s a teeny bit dabbling in it as well as getting back into some crit racing in in the madison days but uh yeah mountain bike racing that was a whole new thing uh, so having a bit of a engine from the red racing days that felt great um but man did i suck on the technical stuff and uh that was a big learning curve how to ride trail faster and and to this day i, I don't do it like the real mountain bikers and certainly not the bmx guys uh who have a whole nother skill set uh to be envied yeah mountain bike racing and then getting into endurance mountain bike racing and really long multi-stage big things like transalp and uh, Ruta de los Conquistadores, big races, really long distances. That turned out to suit me even better than the cross-country stuff. And 24-hour races and 100-kilometer races and things like that through the late 90s and early 2000s. Moved to Italy uh, once to build frames in northern Italy, up near Bolzano, where I was part of a mountain biking team, and we did Transalp again. Uh, on a bunch of cross-country races, and uh, then came back, moved to Boulder, 
had two kids, worked at bike shops, eventually uh, helped with um, kind of the early days of spot brand bicycles being in Colorado. And me and another guy doing a lot of bike wrenching there and, and starting to do some frame building there before moving back to Italy. And uh, I really had to buy my way into a job. So I started a small service shop and that uh, gathered quite a following. That was in central Italy. Uh, I got on a mountain bike racing team and we did a lot of grand fondos and mountain bike racing and marathon mountain bike racing. And this would have been 08 through 012. I eventually moved back to Boulder. Um, the shop still exists. They they renamed it after me, which is quite an honor. But Ryan's Bike Shop in Ascoli Piceno, kind of our sister shop. Fabulous. But they're, they're wonderful. Uh, a teammate of mine bought a bunch of my remaining stock while I was there, and he kept it going and, and made it way nicer and way better, bigger than than I had ever dreamed of. I was kind of a grungy one-man show, working on bikes and just doing a lot of riding. He has made that shop a sparkling, beautiful entity that attracts business from all over central Italy. Uh, that's Giulio Fazzini. Good friend and, and a really fast guy on a bike. Um, so I came back to Boulder, worked at a few places, and then got to the point where I said, no, I, I need to do this myself. And that start, started Boulder Bicycle Works. And that was about six years ago. Wow. Brian, that's an amazing story. I had no idea, really. Thanks. That you had done all of that. But uh, I guess it all shows up in the quality of your personal work and your philosophy and your business. Sorry, I'm, that was probably long-winded. It's just a lot of years to condense. You know, I'm, I'm 55, so started doing this. I started working for pay on people's bikes before high school, just on my own. And that's a lot of years to condense. I'm glad to know the story. Uh, thanks for sharing. But I, I think also that that your age and that amazing background that you just shared with us sort of makes you perfect for being a guest on Wise Athletes so let's get into some of the questions that I've got. Uh, and I'll start by just saying, you know, when I started, first started cycling, and my story is like nothing like yours. I, I, as a kid, obviously I had a bicycle. I mean, I, mean, I think every kid does. Uh, and then I was not into cycling. I, you know, I dabbled in mountain biking, but I was not really into cycling until like 50. But when I was a kid, as I think back, you know, my bike was just a thing I used to go places. Uh, you know, I didn't ride it for fun. It was just a, you know, it was how I could get where I needed to go. Um, and the thing, if it needed maintenance, I never knew about it. it nothing ever happened. I don't know that I ever had a flat tire. It, it was just this durable thing like a light switch. It, you just, you know, it just always worked. Now, as I think about my own bicycle, your drop bar road bike, which is a really finely tuned machine that's more like a watch. And I can re still remember how terrifying it was when I first started riding that, what if I got a flat tire? I don't know how to change a flat tire. Uh, you know, what if something goes wrong? Uh, I can still remember coming down uh, left-hand canyon at 50 miles an hour and thinking, I wonder if front wheels ever fall off. So, oh man, last that's the last thing you ever want to think about <laughs> that speed. <laughs> exactly. But it does creep into the brain, yeah. You know, I've got a lot of questions and and mostly I'm still alive because most of the terrible things that I wondered about as I was flying never happened. But still, you know, eventually I did have flat tires and I had to learn how to change a flat and sure it would have been better to learn it in my garage, but instead I learned how to do it standing by the side of the road and you know, look, pulling out all the stuff that I had brought along with me that I got from a, from a list in a magazine of the things that you're going to need and try to figure out how to... Everyone starts somewhere. <laughs> right. You, know, you got to start someplace. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm sure that you get customers who are new and they have worries about things or, you know, pains. What advice do you give to people when they are just getting into cycling and they're asking you for advice. 
usually our our conversations are more focused on the mechanical end of things. But I'm I'm always happy to talk to people if they are looking for advice on not not so for me personally not so much fit. Although you know I know the basics, but I have two guys that work with me that are expert fitters uh, as well as expert uh, mechanics. And I always defer to them on, on questions of fit, uh, and as far as the body's concerned, and how uh, the way the bike, the way they're situated on a bike, might affect their body, and pains of that nature, whether it be lower back, neck, shoulders, feet, knees, you name it. You know, I I'm, I'm very good with questions as far as oh, I'm a beginner, and what equipment should I get? I, I have very, I don't know, I, I try to lead people in the right direction because I, I feel that people tend to think they're going to solve problems or, or get ahead of the game by spending their way out of situations. That's not necessarily the case, and I, in some ways, discourage this idea that, hey, I'm, I'm new, and what's the what's the best I can buy? Really, do you want to you jump right into that $10,000 Uber bike and A, you don't know if you'll love the sport, but B, you have nowhere to go from there. And, and honestly, as an, as a newbie, even if you're coming from another sport, uh, you're not going to appreciate that equipment uh, unless you grow into it. So I recommend medium level bikes where those bikes will do just fine. Those bikes are not going to hold them back. Uh, but they'll be able to learn on those bikes. They'll be able to mistreat them a little bit more with no harm done. Um, because super high-end anything, whether it's mountain, road, track, gravel, super high-end is um, can be finicky and definitely is going to be costly. The maintenance is going to be costly. Uh, people don't think about that. It's amazing. When you buy a Ferrari, do you know what an oil change costs? Well, direct translation in the bike world. People don't think about that ever. They just buy the super high-end stuff, and then they're shocked at what replacement parts cost. Again, when you buy the Lamborghini, do you know what a set of those tires costs? <laughs> I've made this mistake, and not really intentionally, but I, you know, as I bought my first real road bike, it came with Dura-Ace components. And I thought, awesome, because the Durace is the best, is what I you know, had, is. had come to understand. Um, among some of the best, yes, for sure. I, I later found out that it's not the best because it's the most durable. It's maybe a little, got more, a little more engineering in it, but it's a, it's, and it's lighter, but it is absolutely not the most durable. No. Yeah. If you, with any bike component manufacturer, if you look at the second down, um, so in the road world of Shimano, that's Ultegra, Durace being the top, you always get more for the money. The material science isn't quite so elevated, therefore it's a little bit heavier, but it usually transcends, translates into more durability. And honestly, you, even most pros blindfolded wouldn't be able to tell the shifting difference practically from Ultegra to Durace. Um, same thing in the world of SRAM road bikes and same thing in the mountain bike world, Shimano and SRAM. You always get more for your money if you just go one level down uh, from the very top. Um, but there's diminishing returns uh, as far as probably everything in this world, but I'm, <laughs> I'm only familiar with bikes. Right. Diminishing returns as you go up to those super high level bikes with the Uber componentry. Um, you get less and less for the amount you're spending. Um, but going back to beginners, it's just don't don't go to that level. Give yourself something to strive for and enjoy and reward reward yourself with in the future. Yeah. Get some experience. Put a bunch of miles in. Learn about bikes and and then upgrade and in, enjoy the process of upgrading and enjoy the benefits. Uh, if you start with that stuff, you you won't. You won't get it. Sure. And there's also got to be something said for, you know, when, when you're new, there's lots of things that you can do that are going to make a really big difference. The difference between, say, Altegra and Dura-Ace is going to be so small that it's, it's lost on most anybody. And you can get something that's more durable and cheaper. That's a win. I mean, that's a, that's a win. Anyway. 
Uh, so let's, let's go back now and, and let's just try to focus on bike maintenance stuff. Here we were talking about, you know, low hanging fruit and the big, the things that you could do that would make a big difference in your cycling. When it comes to bike maintenance, what would you say is the 80, 20 rule in bike maintenance? What are the few things that make the most difference for people? Here's something that it makes the most difference and, and doesn't cost you much to do, if anything, and, and can save you from spending more money in the future. Most people, we get a huge mix of, of clientele, but one of the big things I see is just lack of basic care to their machines. And this spans, this spans the beginner. Uh, from the beginner to the expert Uber riders that are racing and training a lot, down to the bike commuter and, and back up to nearly professional athletes, is lack of basic, basic care. And so the super basics are, you know, once in a while, you don't have to do this too much, too, and I can get into that because you can do some of these things too much, but cleaning off your frame and the major components and the rims, spokes, hubs, and and just wiping those down and taking and looking closely while you're doing it pay attention that will that will tell you a lot of things various frame materials are more prone to developing cracks some of them are than than others and this may almost be a thing of the past but in the past uh frame cracking i believe was more of a thing than it is now um, it's actually hard now to anywhere from a medium level to an upper level frame to, to find bad frames. They're, they're generally, they're just so good. It wasn't always like that. But when you clean things off and you're looking closely at the details, the paint, the, the joints of the tubes, um, the, or the junctions, can't say joints anymore in the carbon world, but <laughs> where the tubes come together, you look at the high stress areas. And once you've cleaned the grime off and the sweat off and then, you know, the sticky sugar solution, You'll, you'll see things and observe things that are of importance and safety-wise. So clean off your frame, clean off the wheels, the spokes, the hubs once in a while. Clean that chain, clean that chain all the time. Super, super easy things to do or keep your tires up to a proper pressure. Uh, we see a lot of overinflated tires. You know, nowadays, bigger tires are, are far more common as they once were, but we've gone back to bigger tires. And what do people do? They, they maintain that old, that old mentality uh, back when we were all using very skinny tires of keeping them up to a very high pressure. Well, most people are overinflating, both in the off-road world and the road world. Uh, another thing that people often do is they over oil the chain and they don't clean it. That's a double whammy that leads to accelerated drivetrain wear, which leads to you spending a lot of money in the future that needn't be spent with proper maintenance. And one thing I can say about lube is it's better to under lube than to over lube. Most people just keep putting on oil ride after ride. And I'm, I'm overgeneralizing. But if you do that and you never wipe that off you end up with this big black snake winding over your chain rings and through your derailleur and back over the cogs that is full of all the little particles that's been blown onto it and in colorado those are it's dry and dusty here and those are the dust is full of small particles of granite and that acts as an industrial abrasive that just every time that link articulates bending it's it's, it's it acts as an abrasive and it wears down the metal so super accelerated chain wear due to what they thought was a good thing, just putting on chain oil and keeping their chain silent. A lot of people overdo that. For whatever amount of oil you put on, you can seemingly wipe off five times as much. And that's what I would recommend. Just always being cognizant of keeping the outer links and the rollers, if you can, completely clean by backpedaling that chain through a cotton rag and you can do that before a ride you can do it after a ride you can't you basically cannot do it too much um, another thing is that's costing people money is you know go out and buy a chain checker i have my favorites but it's money that will pay for itself 10 times over in the future one of my favorites is the roll-off chain checker 
super, super simple to use. And in two seconds, you can get a feel for where in the life your, your lifespan, your chain is before you should replace it in order to not use it too much and wear out your cassette and chain rings. Because we see that all the time. People just take chains and use them until basically they're skipping. And then they bring it in. They say, hey, I knew, need a new chain. Well, we measure it and it's it's so far gone that the bad news is then, well, you either live with what you have and uh, or if it's skipping and you have to replace it. Unfortunately, now you need chain rings, you need a cassette, you need a chain, and you might need derailleur pulleys. Uh, because the chain is completely blown and everything that it rolls on is blown. Another easy thing is looking at your brake pads, especially on disc brake pads, which are common with road, gravel, and mountain. It's by far the most common now. Our rim brakes have seemingly gone away, at least in the western part of the world. I think if I were still in the Midwest, I, I would prefer rim brakes probably on my road bike. Um, but going down mountainsides, it's it's by it's superior in, in any way so but checking the brake pads they are kind of hidden in those calipers um, but once you get used to actually peering in there and discerning how much pad material you have left versus uh, the backing plate and where the rotor is don't let those go down too far a it's a it's a matter of safety but if you are if you do wear out the brake pad material and go metal on metal meaning the metal backing plate touches the metal rotor you've just ruined your brake rotor so now you've got to buy new rotors. So just checking stuff like that. That's the easy stuff that will save you money in the future. That sounds like good advice, Brian. Is there any other like common things people do wrong uh, or, or kind of rules of thumb that people might be able to use to know when they ought to check or maybe they don't want to check? You know, that's just not who they are. They're not handy type people they should bring the bike into a shop every so often and just have the the shop check it out uh for sure we and i encourage people to do that with us all the time because it like i said it takes me two seconds okay 10 seconds because i have to walk over to my bench and grab a chain checker and come back and put it on their chain but i'm happy to do that for people i tell them all the time Please come in, uh, no charge at all, and I'll, I'll look and make sure you have enough brake pad material and check that chain. And it's, it's quick and easy. If you if you buy a chain checker at home, then okay, you, you save the trip. But if you're out riding, stop in and see your guys at a local shop. Super quick and easy to do. And I think that's that's really important is to develop good habits. We can talk about that, but best habits on chain maintenance because there are certain ways of lubing chains and, and doing things to your chain that will accelerate wear. And there's certain things you can do that will give you the most miles possible out of a chain. And if you just check the chain or have it checked once in a while and keep track of how much it's wearing, we all call it chain stretch. Chains do not stretch the metal wears and the pin to pin distance becomes greater and greater and uh, all the cogs that that chain is rolling on you wear to that pin to pin length so as the pins get further apart the the teeth get scooped out more and more as that basically the chain is no longer sitting down uh, at the bottom of the cog it's working its way ever upwards because the the pins are no longer a half inch apart. Um, and eventually it will wear so much that it'll skip over the top of those cogs. But it's super cheap to keep track of that and not let that happen. Wow, I, I actually did think that change stretched. No, the metal does not stretch. I mean, that makes perfectly good sense um, that it wouldn't. And Joe, just remember that, that so let's say you're using Ultegra or Dura Ace or sram red or access your, your new 12 speed wireless or you know xtr on the mountain bike um, the chain is the cheapest part of that equation lord forbid you have to change a large chain ring on any of those groups i've mentioned um, or a high-end cassette the chain is the cheapest thing 
So you, the point of having a chain checker at home or going to a shop is you want to change that chain before it gets to a certain point. And if you do, you can put a new chain on. After a certain amount of wear, you cannot put a new chain on because that new chain will skip on the most worn cogs, your most commonly used cogs, because they've been scooped out and they've worn to fit that old chain. So obviously it depends on how much you're riding, but I mean, is there kind of a rule of thumb like you should always just change your chain once a year or every six months or anything like that? I mean, because if the point, a chain is not all that much money and not that much money to change it, even if you're paying labor. Exactly. Why not just do it more often than you need? How often would that be for somebody who's riding several days a week? Well, I've got, I've got some funny anecdotal. Do you have time for a very funny sure. story? Um, and, and true. Back when, so I'm 17, 18, 19, in my 20s, and I knew guys back when we were using five and six speed freewheels. I knew guys that would, uh, you know, all chains come with a factory grease on them. Actually, I know one guy in particular who will remain unnamed, although he's a friend and he was a super strong racer. Uh, speaking of changing your chains a lot, he would ride a chain until the factory grease was worn off and was squeaking. And he would just throw that chain away and put a new one on. Now, back in those days, those, those freewheels had very thick teeth, a lot of metal on those things. And uh, I didn't do that, but those chains and freewheels would last nearly forever. But I mean, he must have never, ever worn out a freewheel because he was constantly changing chains. But get this, a five-speed Cetus Sport chain back in the day, I, I don't even know. We bought we bought them in bulk, so they probably cost five dollars. <laughs> you know, why not change it? Right. Um, but if it is the cheapest part of your drivetrain, unfortunately, the whole thing about when should someone change it and is there a general rule? No, unfortunately, not because there's such varying habits amongst people and ge- geographical areas. Um, I live in a dry, dusty hot area as you know um it's a high altitude desert it's 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 really dry here if i lived in the pacific northwest i don't even know that i'd use the same lube um around here the lubes that i generally recommend are uh, the driest lubes possible every single one of my bikes gets waxed uh and by that i mean squirt lube uh, just because it's a little a little bit faster than actually dunking it in the hot wax um we use molten speed wax for the, the triathlete pros, anybody doing track events, anybody doing time trialing. Paraffin wax is has been proven to be the most efficient, the cleanest uh, thing that you can possibly use. Squirt lube is is my preference um, because I can I can just drip it on like a normal lube. It's basically wax emulsified in water, and the water evaporates off, leaving a wax. Um, it keeps my drivetrains extremely clean. Uh, the chain is extremely dry. All I have to do is wipe it off once in a while with a with a dry rag, and that's it. Chains last way longer. If I were in the Pacific Northwest, uh, or if I were living in Ketchikan, Alaska, in a temperate rainforest, I, I don't know. I might use something different. For many people, I believe drier lubes would be better. And as a general rule of thumb, the less you use, the better. I literally put a drop on each roller. I backpedal it a few times and let it seep into the roller. Um, and then eventually wipe off as much as you can. You don't with a, you don't have to do that with a wax. A hard wax will just fall off if there's too much of it. But with an oil, you really can't wipe off too much. But the reason you can't overgeneralize and say when you should change a chain is because so many people are using so many different types of chain lube and what's their conditions is it is it muddy generally or is it dry and dusty Um, how much do they ride how much do they weigh how much force are they putting into the pedals all those things affect chain wear well then you should just just you know just kind of have a uh, a reminder come up on your calendar every so often just to say take the bike in and have the chain check let's just take it to the extreme and say you're a a very light person and you're mostly on swift indoors and you haven't overlived your chain it's 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 just been properly lubricated 
Oh my gosh. I mean, a year, uh, may or may not be worn out. If you're a heavy guy mountain biking, uh, where it's very muddy all the time. Well, geez, that, that chain is probably so worn that the whole drive train is smoked. So what is that? The six month guy, the three month guy? What? <laughs> yeah, uh, actually no joke. Depending on where you live, if you're doing a lot of off-road miles through streams and, and mud, uh, that may be a month, two months, three months. Okay. It's, it's absolutely amazing what different geographies will do to a chain. I live in a very easy environment, actually, uh, because it is so dry. Okay. It's easy on components. The opposite is the wet areas. In a, in a wet area, your tires, whether you're road or gravel or mountain, your, your tires are flinging up stuff all over, all over the bike and all over the drivetrain. Um, with road, if you, if you wanted, you could use fenders. With gravel, that's not, unless you've got a lot of clearance, it's, it's not probably done that much. And in mountain biking, certainly not. It, you're never going to use a, a fender or anything that's going to keep the, the mud off your drivetrain. So your, your, your thing you might be paying the most attention to is, does my lube get me through a ride and still lubricate the chain? Uh, in some areas, I doubt there's anything you could use and it get you through a long ride. You might have to reapply it. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, bike safety. I never hear about this. And so it's probably just uh, the worrier in me that wonders about this sort of thing. Uh, although I actually do have a story that I can tell here. But what are things that people can do to know that they do have a safety problem? I mean, I've, I have heard a story of a prominent fellow in the Boulder area whose front wheel fell apart on him while he was traveling down the road at a pretty high rate of speed and had a pretty bad crash. I've always wondered about, uh, you know, carbon frames and cracks and the, the chance that something might just fall apart on you. Um, I mean, I saw a video of a guy in a time trial bike uh, hit a bump and his handlebars broke off and then Superman down the, down the street. So, you know, these are obviously unusual things, but for people who maybe find themselves going very at rapid rates of speed because they're going downhill or things like that. Are there things that they should do to uh, tr make sure that their bike is in adequate condition before they're going 50 miles an hour? Because for me, it was always when yes. I was going 50 miles an hour is when I thought, I wonder <laughs> if I put my front wheel on properly the last time I changed my tube. Okay. These, these are great, great questions. And uh, I have to tell you, I, Maybe now is not the time, but I have a story of breaking a carbon bar. Horrifying. And um, so here's here's some here's the biggest safety things I I think. Um, and let me just say that I I think I mentioned this before. Nowadays, if you buy a medium level frame on up from a, a name brand, the frames are all so darn good. Um, I've seen scary things. I've seen knockoff frames uh, come from China with others, other bike brands printed on the down tube. Clearly, uh, especially for the price paid, clearly are not the same quality. And there is no way, I know people will argue about this, but there's no way I would ride one of those. Because as you know, here in Colorado, we have huge climbs, huge descents, high speeds, and um, we've all hit that that bump that we didn't see, the rock, the pothole, whatever it is. And you could not pay me to use a, a copy of a, a big brand. I would not, absolutely would not do that. And we look inside these frames as much as we can, and uh, they're kind of horrifyingly low quality. Uh, and that's what you're paying for. Yeah. And, does your is your life worth saving that money or your face your 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 teeth no but super easy easy things to check are the conditions of your your front tire especially and it i get to ask this all the time should i rotate my tires because they're thinking of cars no uh, and this is this is just my opinion but here here's my logic in this you only rotate in one direction and that's always front to back so uh, and this this really only applies in the road and gravel world. Uh, a lot of times in the mountain bike world, you're using front specific or rear specific tires. 
But in, in the road and gravel world, for safety concern, you want your best and newest tire uh, up front. Um, because in a high-speed situation, if you if that tire blows out, whether it be tubed or tubeless, if it blows out on the front, you're in a corner. Uh, there's a slim chance you'll you'll keep upright, and there's a way bigger chance that you're going to go down and go down hard. Uh, if the if the rear tire blows out, most people stand a good chance of keeping it upright and scrubbing speed and coming to a stop. So best tire up front. Uh, once you wear out that rear tire, which is going to wear much sooner than the front tire, uh, because more of your weight is over the back and it's it's constantly uh, being driven, um, then get rid of the rear tire. And if you don't want to change both tires, put the front one on the back and get yourself a new tire for the front. Um, so there's, there's one big safety thing. Uh, brake pads. Do you have enough material? Are they correctly aligned? Uh, you'd be surprised how many people have, uh, especially rim brake pads that aren't hitting the rim surface perfectly or have worn so much that they're now diving under the brake track or, uh, heaven forbid this happens enough too, but they're, they're above the brake track and they're actually cutting into the sidewall of the tire, uh, which is going to be disastrous sooner rather than later. If you're still using quick releases, are, are they at the proper tightness? They should make an indent in your palm as you as you close them. It's real simple, and if you don't know, just go to a bike shop, have have some old experienced cyclist show you how. It's real simple, real easy to do. Through axles, check those. Make sure they're secure. We, we've seen them sometimes over-tightened, but more often actually under-tightened. That's a little scary. Are your rims in good condition? This goes back to cleaning off your bike once in a while. Wipe down your frame. It, it, you don't need anything fancy. If you put Dawn, uh, a few drops of Dawn in, a, in, a, in an old water bottle and shake it up and squirt that into a rag, uh, you can lightly wipe off your frame, wipe off your wheels, the spokes, around the spoke nipples, the hubs, and, and look at your frame. Um, on, carbon, on carbon rims, maybe one of the more common things is if it's a rim brake and you've got big descents, Hopefully, the the brake track is not delaminating uh, due to super high heat on big, fast, steep descents. Uh, but for the most part now, rim brakes are gone with carbon wheels and people are using disc brakes. That's a very good thing. But are, are the spoke nipples pulling up through the, the carbon? Are they starting to crack the carbon? We've seen plenty of that on aluminum rim brake rims of, of almost days past. How is the brake track? Is there enough of it there? If it's becoming really concave, that that rim is soon to be done. Uh, get get rid of it. Get a new get a new wheel or have a new. If the hub is awesome and still good in shape, have a new wheel built with a new rim and new spokes. Spoke tension. Um, have someone show you an under tensioned spoke versus uh, one that's good and get a get a feel for that. Most people, though, if their spokes are coming out of tension, their wheel's going out of true, and that's a, a visual thing, and they can have that checked. Um, stem and handlebar bolts. If you're riding nice equipment, do yourself a big favor. Go go buy a torque wrench set. Uh, you can buy the, the, the preset keys that are set to 4 newton meter or 5 newton meter or 5.2. And then you can change out the little bits. So you have a four, you have a three, four, five millimeter bit. Uh, you can go buy a set from Park that's adjustable and has a bunch of bits. Or another company, an Italian company called Effetto Mariposa. They both make great torque wrenches with, with sets of bits. But with high-end bars and stems, especially if you're using carbon stuff or your seat post, the torque wrench. You do not want to over-tighten that stuff. Uh, if you do that enough, it, even if let's just say you're checking the, the bolt tightness and you happen to just nudge it up a little bit every so often, eventually you won't even know it, but you will have over-tightened that stuff. That can lead to splintered carbon, uh, which is weakening the system, and then it makes it prone to failure should it incur a huge impact on a, that unexpected pothole at high speed. Uh, aluminum bars. A uh, prime example is you live on the Atlantic side of the Florida coastline and you're riding an aluminum bar and stem. 
you would not believe how the salt air will corrode aluminum. Or let's just say you've been on a trainer all winter and you're, you're dripping sweat all over that bike, which you absolutely should not do. I could go into that. Um, but sweat is corrosive and very salty. Uh, certain climates are extremely corrosive if you're near the ocean. And I've seen, I've taken off the tape on handlebars and seen holes right through the aluminum. And they are one small pothole away from complete uh, failure of the handlebar. That's super scary. Yeah. Those are, those are the simple, quick things. Wow. Yeah. Well, those are some good tips, Brian. Uh, <laughs> I do not mean to. Uh, I could horrify you further, uh, <laughs> even with personal experience. Yeah, I bet you could. And I, I've, I've got even with my shorter timeline on the on the bike. I, I've got one really bad story that uh, someday I'll have to reveal publicly about a mistake I made and got away with um, zooming down from ward on left-hand canyon oh. hearing a funny noise that turned out to be quite a serious thing that did not get oh, me God. uh anyway we, we've been talking for a while and i wanted to get a little bit on here about you mentioned swift uh or you know uh, on you know people riding on trainers and these days well we're heading into uh winter now and so a lot of people will just not want to freeze to death, you know, or freeze their toes or whatever thing they don't like about the cold, myself included. And so they'll be on Swift or whatever the online training thing that they do. Uh, but also with the, the virus and, the, you know, people worrying rightly so about catching the virus from other people, which is still going to be with us here until we hopefully the vaccine will work out. Yeah. A lot of people are just doing online or they're doing just a whole lot more of it than they ever did before. And so does that change things? Does that, I mean, I know for me, I, I'm not washing my bike because it used to be I'd ride my bike and before I put the bike away, I'd squirt it off with a hose, you know, uh, you know, I'd take a quick look at it and then I'd put the bike away and then the lube would be, I would do that before the next time I rode the bike. Uh, but now the bike is sitting on this trainer in this space that's not real big. And so it's not easy for me to get in. I'm not, it's not dirty. Uh, uh, well, hell, I don't even really know what it yeah. looks like. Cause I haven't looked at it, um, you know, cause I haven't <laughs> taken it outside. So what would your advice right. be for people like me who are doing almost all of their riding right now indoors on a trainer? So let's see. I think my biggest piece of advice is regarding sweat. Um, so you're in a super clean area. I mean, you're indoors. You, you're not getting mud on the drivetrain. You're not getting dust blown on and, you know, all the outdoor things that are, are eventually coating your, your chain. You're, that's not happening. The biggest thing we see that destroys bikes that have been used indoor for long periods of time is sweat, honestly. And I, I go to great lengths. I also have a bike set up on a trainer now uh, all the time. And I, I go back and forth between rollers and, and Oahu kicker. Uh, I love them both. I use Sufferfest and I use Zwift. And it's a great way to get a very short, intense workout in and, and get on with your busy day. A super efficient use of time and entertaining. And yeah, I could go on about this. But anyway, sweat. Uh, so if you, I'm, I've got something over the top tube, it's one of those things you buy that Velcros onto the handlebars and it's this triangular shaped thing that goes wide up front, covers in the middle part of the handlebars, it covers the stem, and then it goes down the full length of the top tube and around this and just as attaches around the seat. Post. So it keeps stuff off of the drivetrain below the top tube. No, 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 no. It's, 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 it's just keeping sweat off the top oh. tube. Um, basically it's, it's hitting the sweat directly below. It's, it's, it's stopping the sweat that's falling directly below you from hitting the top tube. But then I have another towel over the tops of the, the handlebars and that wrap around the hoods. So I've got one towel over the hoods and the handlebar. And so my hands are on that. And then I, I, I draped a towel over the front wheel that hangs down past the hubs. 
So as if I'm standing up and my forehead is dripping and I also just constantly change out uh, headgear, you know, old hats and sweat absorbing materials on my head. Um, so, but if it, but something drips off the cap over the front wheel, now the hub and spokes are protected because I, I just don't want those areas to have sweat rain down upon them and, and just sit there and corrode the metal. But pretty much the whole top of my bike in front of me is covered by a towel. And we see, not so much now, but we used to see a lot. Typically it was, um, at, I'm not picking on triathletes, but uh, a lot of triathletes do um, really hardcore workouts indoors in the winter. Um, and a lot of them apparently do not put towels over the bike and, and the corrosion that happens to the cables and housing and to the stem bolts and then the stem and the handlebars themselves is, is immense. You wouldn't believe it. Even the headsets uh, just locked into place, corroded. All that metal will corrode. And certain people, I think, have more corrosive sweat than others. Uh, certain people sweat more. Well, some people have more salt in their sweat than others. Maybe that's it. I, yeah. But it will definitely do damage to the bike. So cover everything. You know, and then once in a while, change out those towels, wash those and put on new ones and just keep your bike from being sweated on a lot. Yeah, That's one of the main things you can do indoors. And then I'm a huge believer. I said it before, but indoor bike, especially if you use a wax chain lube and some are way better than others, in my opinion. But if you use a true wax, oh, my God, you, you wax that chain about maybe twice in a winter. And, and hardly have anywhere. It's amazing. So I really like that. It keeps the whole drivetrain super clean. All right. Well, I'd say that you're credible in, uh, in offering this advice. So I'm going to take it myself. I think everybody should. <laughs> Cover the bike up. And, and once in a while, also take a, a wet rag. And, you know, some because some sweat's going to get by those towels no matter what. And wipe off the surface of your frame and, and what components you can reach and, and just wipe them down with a, a, a wet towel, a damp towel to get the sweat off. It's corrosive. Excellent. Wow. Another thing I'm not doing, but I will start doing. Well, thank you very much. Brian, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, and so I want to begin the process of wrapping up. Uh, but I don't want to cut you off if you've got a, you know, another thing or two that you think people really ought to know. I'm full of stories and I don't know, I, I tend to go off uh, probably and ramble on, on on whatever subject it is. I, I can ramble on, but is, I don't know. Do you have another? The one thing that uh, I've always sort of worried about, of course, more when I was riding outside all the time was um, high pressure water on the drivetrain. Ah. Oh, this is a good one. Actually, I'm super happy you mentioned that because as much as I've said, you know, wipe down your frame, notice I'm saying wipe it down. In my mind, there's a few instances where I'll use a pressure washer and 99% and of the time I will not. And if I use a pressure washer, I, I do my utmost to avoid aiming that thing towards any bearing. Um, but muddy mountain bike races or cyclocross races, when you have to get your bike back in a car and go home and that that bike is covered with 15 pounds of goop yeah a pressure washer uh, blast that bike off blast all the mud off but go to great great pains and care to not aim that nozzle uh, down into a headset sideways into a bottom bracket don't aim it at the sides of your hubs uh, come straight down on a hu hub from the top um, but you don't want to aim it at any bearing seal uh, because pressure washers, uh, those those pressures are so high, they'll go. The water will go right past those seals. And people, we see people who make a regular habit of pressure washing their bikes, and man, they smoke those bearings so fast, it's unbelievable. You could definitely overwash bikes. Okay. Uh, so even at the shop, we use a very low pressure water system, or a bucket with a soft, a soft scrub brush. And um, do it by hand. So a, a, a scrub brush better than high high pressure water. Yeah, I mean the pressure water system is the fastest by far, but you just stand the chance of introducing water into bearings 
if you do that enough, you kill the right. barons. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got that in. Brian, thank you very much for your time. Uh, I suspect that Joe, I suspect that I'm going to have some questions uh, come through, uh, and so we'll reach out to you. And plus, I also want to get so, uh, some links from you related to some of the suggestions you had on tools people could use. Um, we'll put that in the oh, show yeah. notes so people, uh, and also get okay. um, some contact info so that people can get in touch with you and your and you know where your shop is located um you know your website and all of those other things that um okay you know you want to share with people yeah i i would i'd be happy to take questions uh, i'd be happy to give you links um helping people out with bikes is is what i do i'm very happy if i can help other people have a more enjoyable safer experience uh, make their equipment last longer you know teach them best practices as, as we know it to be in our experience. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me on this show. It's been fun chatting with you. Thanks again. Very nice. Thank you so much for listening in to our discussion with Brian Hannon of Boulder Bicycle Works about bicycle maintenance and how to avoid the mistakes that lead to costly repairs as well as safety issues. Check out the show notes to find the products that Brian mentioned as well as links to the Boulder Bicycle Works website. If you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a big help. Glenn and I will be back soon with more useful information for wise athletes.